Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the Mid-Alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entale app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but I put on um, some rather sort of drippy, runny, tinted moisturiser. I sort of threw it at my face and it's (laughs) gone in my eyes. You know, the way sun cream sometimes does and you blink and blink all day like a sort of myopic bunny. So it's a bit stingy, but it's also slightly soothing because I feel like there is a sort of sheen, a film of goo between me and clear vision of the world. As opposed to like a roomy film. (laughs) Oh, roomy, yes. Yes, yes. Maybe it's just old age hit me about an hour and a half ago. Sometimes I take my contact lenses off. You know, just so that I see can the world see less the world. clearly. <laughs> exactly, so nice. How I can are you, see em? less clearly now. Uh, oh, I'm absolutely fine, but I've got a terrible case of the shoulds. Um, you know, you should be doing this. You should be doing more. You should be doing exercise. You should be doing meditation. You should be doing. You In know. other words, you should be doing everything that you're not doing. Yes, of course. So it's just a, it's just another stick to beat yourself with. I mean, as Great. usual, hooray! Yeah. Anyway, so I'm carrying the should stick, but it's okay because our next guest is <laughs> a complete badass. An addiction therapist who has herself been in treatment for addiction, whose TED talk is titled Handle Feelings Before They Handle You. She's co-founder and clinical director of Charter, set up in 2008 as the first outpatient clinic so solely specialising in private addiction treatment. She is a multi-hyphenate who has connected with darkness and helped thousands untangle their demons in order to learn to live a full life. She looks at self-esteem and the frightening areas of vulnerability, fear and how we can meet the demands that life throws at us without constantly running on empty. Sound familiar? She is wisdom in motion and this might be some of the most important 40 minutes of our lives. Welcome, Mandy Saligari. I feel like I should <laughs> wow. have like thunder and lightning <laughs> <Exactly. as well. laughs> no. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, hello, I'm Mandy. I'm absolutely fine, but I'm not sure if I'm going to meet the pressure. <laughs> I know, drum rolls, trumpets. Oh, dear. Oh, exactly. God. Mandy, feelings. Yes. So Emily and I were talking earlier. And we, you know, after years and years of therapy, we're still coming at this from the point of view where we often don't understand what it is that we're feeling. We find it so hard to even identify what's going on. So that feels rather like falling at the first hurdle. Is that something that you hear a lot? Uh, Yes, I hear it all the time. So people are trying to get their feelings right. So they often think uh, that they'll come in and they'll say, you know, I'll say to them on my first session, I'll say to them, you know, how do you feel? And they'll say, good, fine okay better and I'll say I don't know how you feel it's just a judgment that's a judgment right so you're evaluating something and coming up with better or worse and then on about the fifth or sixth session I'll say how are you and they'll say I knew you were going to ask me that so I've been thinking about it all morning so here's one I prepared earlier exactly Um, but when you're looking at emotions point about it is that if you want to be able to take responsibility for the subsequent behavior if you want to be the person you want to be if you want to have agency if you want to have control over what you do you've got to know how you feel first. So one of the first um, exercises with anyone, uh, whether you're parenting someone and wanting to teach them from naught onwards as an early intervention, or whether you're working with people or on yourself, is to know how you feel and think in terms of mind, body, emotion, and soul. So thoughts are sort of feelings, confused, thoughtful, those kinds of things. Um, body feelings, hot, cold, hungry, achy, tired, those kinds of things. Um, emotions, sad, 
uh, happy, sorrow, mournful, peaceful, those kinds of things, and soul, grateful, hopeful, ungrateful, hatred, <laughs> those kinds of things. So they're kind of generic. You can have the same emotion, if you like, in all four columns. But it is so helpful because otherwise we're just looking at the big tangled sort of yeah. bird's nest of I. How am I? What even am I? Yeah. So just to slice it up into bits of pie a bit. Mm. Interesting. Because I always and if think you, of feelings on. might be like primary colours. <laughs> like like there's, I, 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 I always worry about how I'm expressing them because I feel like there's the primary colour feelings that I don't know which ones they are. And then everything else there is like a blend of all of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, I do. And then which are the primary feelings? Are they love or, or are they fear, anger, happiness, yeah. whatever, you know. And, and then I just get myself into a complete, and it is like a, a watercolour of mess. Well, often people will say things like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not angry. I'm just annoyed. And I sort of go, <laughs> well, actually, ang- annoyed is a subdivision of anger. But anyway, we'll, we'll deal with that in session 10. Um, I, think, I, I think people are frightened of the primary colour emotions, yeah. some people, and they want to err on the sort of um, lighter colour emotions. Yes, and I think you do. The, you, you, the because they don't, yeah, they don't want to be identified as, I feel guilty, I feel sad, I feel ashamed, I feel angry. You know, they want to say, oh, I'm a little bit this and I'm a little bit that. Problem, if you're a little bit something, is then you're only going to get a little bit of help for something and a little bit of support and a little bit of, you know, so if you know you're angry, even if it's a lesser tone of angry, then you're closer to knowing what you might need in order to be able to handle whatever feeling it is and why it came up. Yeah. Just to take anger for a second, yeah. I think a lot of grown-up women are quite frightened of, of their anger. They've been brought up being told that, you know, anger anger is unattractive, it is repellent, it should be controlled, it's too wild. And also, if you admit that you're angry, you're letting in the idea that you've somehow been wronged, that something has gone badly. And I think that people will do all sorts of things just to just to not experience or admit to the anger. I agree with you. And I think one of the things people do is identify themselves as anxious. Yes. So what, instead of angry? Yeah. If you repress anger, the energy goes inwards and then it has to sort of burn off in a way. And quite often it will burn off through the lens of feeling anxious. There is a theory, isn't there, that depression is anger turned inwards. Yeah, I think yeah. anger I think anger has a big part to play in um, in recovery, really healthy anger from depression, from anxiety and from the addictive processes. Mm. No, I don't think people should march around being angry everywhere, but I do think that anger is nature's primary defence. And as a result, we need it on board working for us. And I think there's a difference between assertiveness, which is standing up for me, and aggression, which is standing up to you. Can I ask you about another one of nature's primary defences, fear? Yeah. And how we can and how we can many of us end up being ruled by fear. I certainly live in fear. That's that's something that, that, that controls almost every decision that I make. Um, and and I know that we need it sometimes. But how do we sort of put it in its place? I'm really interested that you're ruled by fear. Um, I, I know it doesn't read that way, does it? It's so it's so often the case. Yeah, I'm pro- I'm I'm false advertising emotion. It's often the case you, yeah, anyway, so um, I shouldn't be surprised by it, really. I should be. But there's me like a goldfish go round and round (laughs) the same thing over and again. And every time I'm surprised. But Emily and I say that all the time. Every time we discover discover something unexpected about usually a woman, we go, why are we still judging them by their covers? Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing about fear is usually 
I mean, there's there's present day fear, which you as an adult can assess and get perspective on. How frightened do I need to be? We have a lot of control in our lives, to be fair. Um, But I think that trigger of being afraid as a kind of core state is early early childhood experience it sets you up to be hyper vigilant it sets you up to expect to be hurt or to expect to be dropped in some way for something to happen and I think it takes a lot of work to um, kind of pull back down that hyper vigilant barometer that you were set up to have as a child so you can live with less fear in the world I think that fear is a self-preservation um, that can really turn in on you and leave you quite isolated, quite defensive, people not really knowing you, all those sorts of things. And I always think that people end up suffering such a lot because they were so afraid, you know, when they were younger. I mean, my own stuff, as you know, is that um, I, one of my survival techniques as a child was not to be afraid. I was so frightened that my way of surviving was not to show fear, which meant that I was fearless in inverted commas all through my teen years. Um, you know, I didn't... How really did that work out for you? Yeah, well, I convinced <laughs> myself that I didn't care. <laughs> okay. Walked around going, I don't care, I don't care, daring, doing all sorts of things. And the probably the most important thing I learned in rehab was I remember the moment when I realised that I don't care wasn't true um I don't care was actually I care deeply and I don't know how to care safely so at 23 I started my journey of learning um to accept the fact that I was somebody who cared so I needed to uh, learn healthy fear and get it into perspective so I could connect with people and be vulnerable and not be ruled by fear or pain or anger all those things if people feel that they are being ruled by pain and anger all those things what are some initial steps right that they could begin to take? Okay, the biggest way of describing it is you need to develop a compassionate relationship with yourself. Mm. That's the answer. How people go about it, lots of different ways about it, and some of it gets poo-pooed, obviously, by uh, people who don't necessarily want to do it. But I do think that when I, I certainly know that when I realize that some of my fear, some of my shame, some of my shyness is me in a very young state, um, learning how to imagine that little Mandy and put my arm around her shoulders and just be in her corner and let her know that all these people might be pointing and saying, you know, you're not good enough or something similar or you're too much or something of that kind, um, it doesn't mean it's the truth. And it's okay. People can think what they want. Um, I'm happy to listen to what they've got to say. But at the same time, I know that I have a good heart, if you like. Um, And I'll never forget that. And I reconnected with little Mandy when I was in uh, rehab and I have never let her go. Mm. And I think that uh, using photographs of yourself when you were very small, choose photographs that you instantly connect to. Don't usually, don't necessarily go for a picture that's a nice picture that's up in the family home. Flick through the albums, find pictures of around six, eight, ten. The six, eight time is really important because it's when you transition from a kind of um, limbic region experience of the world, just soaking up atmosphere, and you go into uh, more uh, control, a sort of frontal cortex arena of experiencing the world. So that's a very important stage for reclaiming yourself. So if you're trying to develop a compassionate relationship with yourself, find pictures of yourself at that age, three or four, just you, ones that you respond to affectionately, just instinctively. You look at the picture and go, oh, God, she's so sweet, or, you know, she was innocent, or 
I don't know, she just, I just love her. Those kinds of feelings. And then you want to put one up in your bathroom if it's private or maybe keep it uh, by the side of your bed. And I think in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth, I do it now, I will look in the mirror and I'll say, looking forward to spending the day with you today, Mandy, let's see what happens. I'm in my corner. And at the end of the day, I might say, look, I'm really sorry, I didn't handle that very well. I developed this relationship with myself. And then I write down things that I'm grateful for. I used to have diaries full of things I was grateful mm. for. I mean, it's worth, I think also I'd, I'd say about the, the little Mandy thing. Yeah. I think it's worth saying to people, be prepared for some very intense feelings yeah. Yeah. to happen when yeah. you when you, when you look at that. But, um, you know, it, it, it occurred to me, and, and I, I won't be alone, obviously, that every spiritual practice for millennia has had gratitude within it yeah. somewhere. So, you know, it's not some newfangled thing. I know that they're flogging gratitude journals everywhere, but yeah. it's sort of the opposite of anger, isn't it? I think the um, it's the opposite of self-pity. You yeah. know, you can feel sorry for yourself um, if you need to, because some of us legitimately have been hurt and you want to be able to pop your arm around yourself and go, yeah, that was rubbish. Um, but it doesn't mean everything's rubbish. So gratitude allows me to maintain perspective. Even when things are difficult or I'm feeling difficult emotions, it's only the emotion that's difficult, it's not the whole world. It prevents me from painting the entire picture with the same colour that I happen to be feeling in that experience in a, that moment. A, a very good therapist um, once said to me when I was sort of on the floor, she just went, you know, it was, it was like she shrugged off a cloak and went, you know, Annabelle, feelings are only feelings. <laughs> And it was an incredible relief at that moment. Because mm, yeah. I know there are things we have to take very seriously. Yeah. We need to learn to read. and But actually, you know, everything was, the, you know, the, the, the roof wasn't falling down over exactly. my head. Yeah. Exactly. I was able to be, feel safe whilst also being distressed. I also think that it's important for people to remember this is what you decided you wanted to do. You know, the, your life happened to you. It happened at a cellular level and all you're deciding to do is to remember it or not. Mm. And when you remember it, you now have an opportunity to reclaim that turf. So go after it and retain it, reclaim it. It exists anyway in your being, in every reaction you have. That experience exists. So get across it, reclaim it and make it your own. And part of that is this this idea that I think about more and more as I get older of taking responsibility yeah, I was for my say, choices. Of having an honest, back to what you're saying, having an honest conversation with your therapist, but also having an honest conversation with yourself about mm -hmm. how you feel, about what you've done or what you can do with and what you can do with it. I agree, responsibility. And I think that, you know, <clears throat> the more I, because, um, because I suffer from the not good enoughs, and I think the more I try and, you know, persuade and convince myself, not convince myself, the more I talk to myself and say, okay, this is, you know, you have to acknowledge your wins as well. And you can't just say, yeah, well, it wasn't quite good enough or whatever, you know, endlessly sort of undermining myself. And that I have to take responsibility for the fact that I'm doing that, that it isn't just a product of, what, you know, whatever's It's a funny phrase, it. though, isn't it? I have to take responsibility. Yeah. Because what we're all doing is taking responsibility for so much. Yeah. You know, Maddie's just move house. You know, you've got whatever is going on. We pay mortgages. We run professional lives. We may or may not have children. We're managing money, health, future parents, it all. You know, we're, we're taking responsibility for so much and then we, and then on top of that we could make this really healthy kind of beautiful choice for taking responsibility for ourselves but it sounds like another job yeah i think it needs to be the foundation not the on top of right if i take responsibility for me and uh i decide you know what i grew up thinking i wasn't good enough but that's not fair that's not my stuff 
So every time I do it, I go, oh, look at you, man. You said you're not good enough. And I can walk down the street sort of, you know, giving myself a bit of a cuddle and chuckling and going, so what if you did X, Y and Z and that wasn't? So what? And give myself that perspective. Then everything flows out of it. And then yeah. the mortgage and the kids and the job and the blah, 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 blah. All that stuff is just easier because I'm I'm all right. Yeah. I'm in my corner. I'm all right. You're right, because if you just stand there sort of static, you know, giving yourself a hard time, like shouting yourself in the street, like, what, what is that about? I sometimes, <laughs> I have to say, I sometimes do it because I, I am prone to saying quite randomly type things. And uh, and I now I chuckle. I might have felt ashamed once upon a time. Uh, but now I just go, I, I might even say to someone, oh, I'm sorry, I, I often say things like that sorry about that or something so you know the usual thing like in a supermarket queue or if um yeah you know and somebody says you know how are you and then I say I tell them how I am and I say how are you and they'll say fine and I'll say fine it's not a feeling (laughs) (laughs) and they're sort of going oh "Oh my god I said no no seriously you might as well I'm packing (laughs) I've got a minute yeah I've got it what's it like working here how are you and you see all these people go (gasps) in the queue like I really caught the wrong queue there I mean that's I mean mean, seeing as I'm ruled if not by fear then certainly by impatience you are my worst nightmare what is that maniac doing striking up a conversation in the queue but the thing you have to also remember is the thing I have in common with you is that I run at 90 miles an hour so I can have that conversation and pack my bags really efficiently really quickly and then we're done and I'll be like lovely talking to you and I'll go uh and then I'll walk out chuckling and I'll be chuckling about those people in the queue probably hated me I've got no idea what the person behind the till thought and I'll be sort of chuckling along with me going that How was a kind you of know what? I read something mm, the other day experience I, I, I read something the other day it was basically in praise of those tiny connections I love them of the little yeah. of Emily is incredibly good at them I'm too impatient I don't tend to do it I storm um, of, of just stopping and talking to someone in a yeah. shop or someone at the yeah. bus stop or you those little jewels you can treasures it. in the day I agree. I love it. I think it's very important. Have you had any brilliant revelations? Like when at the, the supermarket counter, and someone go, "Well, actually, let me let me tell you, this has happened. This has happened. This happened." Or do you think people, are, or people are quite sort of cautious? No, I think people seem they don't believe that I actually am listening in that moment, and when they do, they just appreciate it, and then yeah. they say, "Look, I really hope you have a nice evening," and I say, "Thank you very much." Yeah, and the funny thing and is, you're it. slightly more likely to have a nice evening after one of those. Possibly, yes. It maybe sets you up a little. I do definitely leave chuckling, feeling part of. And my sort of default is not to feel part of. My default is that I feel like some, you know, I feel like the witch who lives in the blooming house but outside also, the village. That's, it lets me feel a sense of belonging. That's a, that's, a, that's a big addict thing as well, isn't it? Feeling yeah. special or other or outside. Yes. and yeah. I don't want to. I want to feel the same Plugged as I, in. Yeah, I like it. I really like it. So what happened? So at 23, you come out of oh, rehab. God. Yeah. And and what led you on the path? Because it was, you didn't immediately set up charter. How did you get from... I wanted to. <laughs> but in those days, they said um, that the general rule of thumb was everybody wants to be a therapist who goes through rehab. So you go back to your day job. And I went back to my day job. I worked in television. And I remember, I don't remember how long a long road it was, I was, I was doing voluntary work and things like that. I, I um, ran a group back in the rehab for newcomers. I was very involved anyway. So you stayed clean? Yeah. At 23? Uh, well, for what was three your, years. What were, your, what, what were you taking? Anything. Yeah. The, thing that, the thing that broke me was a relationship. So, so codependency health, got you in the end. Love addiction, I'd Love say. addiction. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm I laughing. I was primed <laughs> for it from my, you know, relationship with my family, really. Yeah. I was. I was set up for it. Nowadays, I spot it. So when I talk to somebody about their family history and they'll be coming in with drug addiction or something like that, and I'll say, let's just have a look. And I want adjectives for mum, dad, older siblings, those sorts of things. And I'm like, mm, well, hang on a second. Does that mean that you choose this kind of person and these kinds of adjectives and this is your profile? And they'll be sitting there saying, oh, uh, yeah. And I'm like, OK, we, we'll, we need to look at that. OK, we'll clean you up. That's easy. But we need to improve your quality of life, which means we have to improve your quality of connection which means we need to change your emotional taste buds Ooh. and you need to fancy somebody that's kind um, if all I have to do is stop taking heroin. So if drugs were my problem, I'm not an addict. Right. That's what I would say. Yeah. So actually the heroin addict has got to stop taking heroin and then wake up to themselves and so yeah. on and so forth. Right? And work so, out why is it they did it, etc. Well, et just d- develop a nice relationship with yourself that means that, every, that you don't hide in the greatest anaesthetic of all time. Yeah. You know, so that's that. But the um, food... Uh, love addiction, codependency. I think one of the problems is that there's a lot of stigma around it and people don't see it and they think it's just normal dysfunction and toxic relationships and people chat about it um, without realising the damage it is doing to themselves, to their sense of cynicism, to their taste in people, to their identities. Last time we met, you did a sort of chilling pen portrait of... Of 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 a how code of a codependent woman yeah. and how that begins. Could you just give us a little taste of what that looks like? Okay, codependency is conditional giving couched as unconditional giving. That's what it looks like. Um, so it's don't worry about me, let's worry about you. And then how do you like me? That sort so of thing. So where it comes from is uh, the codependent grows up in a family where naught to six when they are in their um, fight flight freeze response as their original kind of. Um, reaction to the world, that child will be growing up in an environment of high demand, high maintenance. Parent, sibling, somebody uh, puts a great emotional toll on the family. And the child looks around and realises that to stamp your foot and say, I want to do a jigsaw too, might actually tip the family over the edge. So instead of doing that, they take a deep breath and say, mummy want a cuddle. And then mummy comes over and gives them a cuddle and says, oh, darling, where would I be without you? Thank you so much. Do you want me to lay the table? Oh, thank you so much. I wish your brother was more like you. Do you want me to go and get my brother for supper? Thank you, darling. And this child realises that not only not needing is a good coping mechanism, but not needing coupled with helping out is a way of getting a valued identity in a family system. So then they silently move through the school system, helping out in tidy up time, being the kid in primary school that uh, you know doesn't join any cliques and every teacher can rely on. They hit secondary school and the parents realise that their child uh, has started to gravitate towards high maintenance kids, the self-harmers, the suicidal ones, the ones who are skiving school, troubled kids, the bad crowd as if such thing exists. And, uh, and they get very worried. What happened to my child that she fell in with these kids? So then they come and see me and I ask the question, what happened to your child when she was very young that meant she knows how to be around people like this? In fact, that is her identity. And most of the time parents say, I don't know, I've got no idea and so on. And then second session round, they say, we've been thinking about what you said. And actually, I think there was quite a lot of difficulty when she was growing up and we're just wondering if... So that child left um, unintervened uh, upon 
will make friends with all the high maintenance kids. They're likely to fall in love with someone who needs them to remain needless and wantless and utterly selfless, don't worry about me, for the rest of their lives. And they will end up what I call running on empty. They will end up resentful, feeling unappreciated. But crucially, um, more than feeling unappreciated, they will be very difficult to help. So for a kind of really domestic example, they'll be in the kitchen sort of chopping up the carrots and that sort of thing on Sunday lunch, listening to everybody else in the other room and thinking, why is it always me who always has to do all of this all on my own? It's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody cares. And then somebody will stick their head around the kitchen door and say, mum, do you want some help? And you go, no, no, it's all right, darling. I've yeah. nearly finished. Everything's fine. Yeah. yeah. So very difficult to help because the codependent believes that they shouldn't need help. They're very conflicted about needing help, wanting help. Uh, about even having their own needs. I think it is the hardest of the addictive profiles to treat because it's like emotional anorexia. You are trying to introduce a relational appetite to somebody who knows how to give it and is ashamed of the condition that deep down they feel that they want it back because they were primed when they were in their limbic region to believe that they shouldn't want it. Mm. Really so difficult. If Perfect partner to the addict as well, by the yeah. way. Yes. So if you're with a dangerous enough partner, dangerous enough for you, then this yes. stuff can kill you. Yes, because what you'll do is you'll constantly be caught up in somebody else's drama, continuing to neglect your own needs. Yeah. yeah. And you're presumably you're incredibly angry mm -hmm. as well. People are very frightened of codependent yeah. people when they get angry. That it will, it will shut down a room so everybody can muck about. But if suddenly mum has had enough, the whole place is like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. And they're terrified because it's self-righteous anger because they are the great sacrificer, the martyr, and the hot, and the glue, the rock. I mean, pick your rhetoric. Okay, yeah. the other thing. Yes. Moving swiftly on, smoothly, <laughs> smoothly on that we talked about when we last met. Can I just As say, though, about codependency, you must learn to give yourself a cuddle. That's the answer. Yeah. Healthy selfish, I want to talk about. Yes. Because um, so that is about being unable to look after yourself in such a way that you can then look after others. Right. Mm -hmm. So you you mentioned you talked to us uh, a few weeks ago about healthy selfish. What does that look like? How do we get there? Because selfish is a bad word, right? Yeah. Right. Healthy selfish is when so selfish is when it's all about me. Selfless is when it's all about you. So it's all or nothing. Healthy selfish is somewhere in the middle. In my lineup of all the people that I care about and who I um, share my life with, I am also in that lineup. So instead of excluding myself and saying, when everybody else is done, I'll sort myself out, or if everybody else is okay, I'll be okay. It's not true. They are all cars that need fuel and MOTs and oil and water and so on, as do I. So I respect myself as being the same as everybody else's in my life, also needing time and energy and input and all those things. So it's saying yes to having a hand. Do you want a hand? Yes, please. You may not need it, but yes, it would make the job quicker. Yes, we might have a chat. Yes, it would teach you something good. Um, are you sad? Yes, I am, but it's okay. I'm gonna to talk to my friend about it, but thanks for noticing. Um, are you hungry? Because uh, there's only one sandwich yet left and I'm starving. Yes, I am. Let's share it you know yeah. not don't worry about me don't worry about me don't worry about me because what you're then doing is trying if you're a parent for example you're saying to your child don't worry about me let's worry about you and the child then gets a mixed message what am i supposed to do worry about me or not worry about me mm. 
It's very confusing. So then if you're healthy selfish, they're able to ask things of you. They're able to ask things of you. You're you're able to say yes. You're able to say no. You're giving from a place of nourishment. You're modeling what your child, you want your child to do themselves, which yeah. is to practice good self-care. Well, of course. And I think that was the thing that really resonated with me is that idea that we tend to forget that actually what we're trying to when you when you when you when you throw yourself into kind of i don't know any kind of parenting or caring behavior where you you don't um you don't show the person that that they are worth looking after as well if you see what yes. I mean if you just throw yourself under yes. the bus basically yes. yeah because they learn from what you do exactly not what, you say. what you say and it's true with friendships as well yes it, it is true with friendships and i think it's it, you know if somebody asks me for, i i love being able to ask friends of mine for help and I will only ask the ones that I know are capable of saying yes, no, and I don't know. Yes. I don't want to ask anyone who will automatically say, say yes. I really so don't. I will pick up the phone and I think, oh, no, I don't want to ask them. It because feels like I'm obliging risk, you. doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm obliging you. If I know you're going to say yes, then I'm obliging you to do something for me. And if I'm conflicted about asking for help, that feels like a double bind. Yeah. Right. yeah. So if I know that if I ring you and say, are you able to help me out with X? that you're capable of saying, oh, I don't know, let me check something out, or no, I can't, or yes, that's okay, then I am completely safe asking you because you take responsibility for your decision. It's not my persuasiveness that manipulates you to do it. And that makes me feel more comfortable. I'm not responsible for you. Yeah, yeah, and that does you know? feel very healthy. I agree. I don't. I think that we have to understand that the transactions that we, the 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 relationships that we have with people should be with people that we can trust exactly to say mm -hmm. no to us, or or also say yes emphatically, and we know a thousand percent that they're not just saying it because they, you know, yes. they're they're in their yeah, distant the, childhood. It's the unapologetic the, no, and yes. the sort of healthy yes. 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 Yeah. And I mean, the unapologetic no is definitely something that you know. That's I'm big for you. Big yeah. for me, just to be able to say no without having to, you know, either put like a string of twenty-five excuses, all of them legitimate, but but just saying no to someone. It's a because of course sometimes they're yes. not excuses; they're reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't do it because I'm doing something else. Yeah. I don't want to. All right. Oh my God! Imagine <laughs> no, <I> that. <laughs> do you want to come to dinner? No. Why? I don't. Oh, shall I pick another date? No, I don't want to. I just don't want to go to dinner with anyone at the moment. I don't feel like it. I know. My friends have heard that, and they're like. Okay, well, let's know when you're back on the, you know, back and around. And I'm like, I will. I'm, <laughs> sorry. I mean, that's the sound of dumbstruck. Absolutely dumbstruck. I'm going to try it tonight. Someone's going to call me and say, do you want to? I'll go, I don't want to. And I'll never to. speak to them again. But what's interesting is, is that <laughs> I know, speak to them I know again. that if I said, if I said that to, you know, you, you would be absolutely fine. I mean, I'd be yeah. delighted. Like, you'd be delighted. And I know that we could have, but the idea of saying it out loud, of saying, I, I don't want to do this. We're always saying, you know, when, Someone asks you to do something and you just think, oh, I need to find a way to say yes. yes. Yes, exactly. My mother would tell me it's probably rude. I mean, I said to uh, my son at the weekend, I said to him, could you walk the dog, please? No. Can you please walk the dog? No, why not? I don't want to. And I said, look, neither do I. One of us is going to walk the dog, flip a coin. Really? Who Fair walked enough. the dog? I walked the dog. He's doing it all through the Easter holidays. I lost the coin flip. God, my children definitely don't have any worries saying unapologetic no. So I feel like maybe that's a win or maybe that isn't. You see, now I'm, I'm, I'm questioning myself. Yeah. I need to lie down. With all this stuff about feelings, though, it sort of takes me on to the thing that I... Um, one of the many things that I struggle with, I suppose, is, I mean, I don't know if I'm using the right term when I say emotional regulation. All I know is that when I feel unsettled or sad or worried or angry or frightened or all of the above... I believe I will feel that way forever. Really? Yeah. Okay. So if a small 
if somebody you cared about sat in front of you and said they felt those and that they thought they were going to feel them forever, what would you say? Well, I would say obviously not. Because we have no idea what, what the next minute brings. It's called projection. Um, which or catastrophizing basically in order to control my fear of daring to hope I take the lowest common denominator yeah you see I don't like hope I feel yes. like hope is just rolling out the red carpet for yes. pain because nothing exactly. is worse than a glimmer of hope and then it crashes yes. again but um, I don't mind it crashing because I like banking the glimmer of hope so you can bank the good stuff I like banking the good stuff I enjoy the good stuff. I was, yes. How do we do that? Um, talk about it. Yes, celebrate about the wins. It. Celebrate the win. Well, even, yeah, I mean, we were talking about it this morning. I was in treatment, um, running group with uh, some people who are there to go to the deep and dark. And uh, and somebody, I said to someone, hey, listen, before we go there, just, just acknowledge how far you have come. And he was like, do you know what? I have. Mm. I really have. And then we had a whole group about people um, acknowledging how far they've come, what they've managed to do. And I think about it like Lego, um, which is you have to put down the foundation in order to build the house. Mm. And what do you want to stand on? Do you want to stand on all the fear-based stuff and all the dark stuff? Or do you want to stand on the stuff that's secure and solid? I want to stand on the good stuff. So I talk about it. I talk about the funny things. I talk about the things I've learned. I talk about the things I feel affectionately towards. But you do have to, don't you? Because it's like a muscle. Yes. So it's practice. Because otherwise, yes. I just had a vision that Lego is useful to me. I love you with your weird visual. So. <laughs> um, but the Lego is useful. <laughs> you know, because otherwise, uh, otherwise your founding Lego piece can yes. be constantly washed away yes. by your own fear, self-loathing, negativity. So there is never a foundation. But maybe, just maybe, if you concentrate or meditate or practice gratitude and or and or, you might be able to keep that first piece in place yes. and shove another fucking piece on top of it. And then you're away, right? I yeah. agree. but uh, mm. And also, you know where you need to go and stand. So when that moment happens mm. that rattles your cage yeah. and you get reminded of the cold winds that used to affect you day in, day out, you can stop and think, OK, I see what's going on. Where's my where's my Lego square? And I think it helps when you talk to people that you you verbally we so often go out and meet and go oh tell me the down and dirty about the boyfriend the husband the girlfriend the da 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 da, and the gossip sort of falls in that arena rather than saying can I tell you some really good stuff that's happened? Yeah, we do trade really, in the misery, don't we? It's yeah. like a, and it's almost like a sort of culturally it's all about not showing off. Or, We're so frightened yeah. of smug. Yeah, you know, particularly when you've been bashed about a bit yeah. and you've resented the people you've perceived to be smug we're so frightened of that that we'd rather yeah. say oh no 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 no, nothing to see here also we're so almost i mean you know of jinxing it as well mm. in that way where we're like oh you know things actually things are going really well thanks you know as if again. we are in control of it well that's also true yeah. the point is if i think i'm going to jinx it then i am implying that i believe i'm in control of it and i'm not it just is what it is what sorts of men from the boys is you know what do you do with what's happened to you right now yeah. How do you behave? It's not that everything was meant to be or that, you know, this was always going to happen. It's how do you deal with what's being given to you? And if you're open, I think we should absolutely bank the good stuff. Absolutely be allowed to feel the glimmer of hope. Allow it to strengthen us so that when we get the drop, we go, oh, it's just the drop. And yeah. by the way, just to do an elegant circle, banking the good stuff is very is, is, is the sister of gratitude. Yeah. Yes, right? yes, so yes. That's where we live is saying, you yeah. know, well done us, thank you, it might be okay. So I've had people sitting, I've had people in therapy who will come in and not have any feelings. 
And then they'll come in and say, I feel terrible. I feel so everything. <laughs> and I'll sit there and go, I know they're dreadful feelings, but boy, look at you. You can feel. Yeah. Woo! Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, you know, so got all progress the there. Now, that, now we need just to slow them down. And you have to learn how to sort of chew them over and digest them. But that's okay. You're on the move. This is what you came here for. I love, it. I love the idea of some howling, snotty, <laughs> yeah. wretched beast. Are you go, this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Maybe putting You're Billie Jean on, having a bit yes. of a dance. Yeah, yes. exactly. There's your always, square. There's your first square. Yeah, bing. Remember the day I had all the feelings at once. I think <laughs> yes. also people, you know, women like us spend a lot of time worrying about whether they're going to cope. You know, and how you can just keep, you know, in all our slightly falling down, the heavily mortgaged houses, how you can keep patching the fucking roof to stop the rain coming yeah. in so you can cope without ever feeling that there's time or that you have the right to look at the foundations. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I think we say all the time, I think it's going to go better. As long as I get everything done this week, it's going to be better next week. Everything will be fine if I can just get through this week. Yeah. And yet... The answer to that, I used to talk to my clinical supervisor about this. You know, I was setting up charter with, um, I had rheumatoid arthritis. I, I could barely move. Um, you were bedridden husband, for about a year, weren't you? I was bedridden, yeah. I was told I may not walk again, all of that. Uh, I had young children, medication coming out of my ears. Um, I had a husband who took to his bed, who I'm now divorced from. Um, <laughs> Did you take to, to his bed while you were taking well. to your bed? No, after, afterwards, he got very ill. And, uh, and so he went down oh. and I had three young children and I was trying to start a business. And it was when the crash happened because I was trying to support the family and there were long hours and it was difficult work and so on and so on and so on. And I was in physical pain because rheumatoid arthritis, for those of you who've had um, babies, rheumatoid arth arthritis hurts more than a natural childbirth. It is like acid on your bones. Anyway, that to one side. And I used to say to my support network and my clinical supervisor, who helps me work with my clients, I'd say, God, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to cope. And she'd say, you are coping. You are coping. That's what you're doing. You know, and she would bring my perspective from the kind of hill in the distance back into right now. And I'd think, OK, right now everything's OK. So and I learned to just trust the process, bank what was good and just stop expending energy trying to control next week it'll come and you will manage trust yourself do you have any mantras that you live by things that you say to yourself in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth things that bring you back to center yeah <laughs> i do <laughs> I, I look at myself sometimes and i just go you know i i say to my it's going to sound really weird but i do say to myself um i really like you i do really like you and I say things like, um, you're going to work really hard today, but I promise you, I'm going to turn the light out by nine o'clock. <laughs> um, or I say, um, it's going to be all right. You know, and I remember you and I remember how much you care. And I say those kinds of things. That is self-care, yeah. actually. Self -care. It doesn't always have to be fucking Epsom salts. No. Or scented candles. No. I'm unattended, unattended. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <I> was making. <laughs> Um, the most important question I have to ask you, Mandy Salagari, is please will you come back? Oh, I'd love to. Because you, you are so a revelation at every point. I know. And we're so grateful to have so you. Grateful. That's so kind. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're such lovely company. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. Onwards and sideways.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.